Welcome to the flyfisher.co.za podcasts. I'd like to welcome Anna Matur to the podcast. Uh, probably not very much of an introduction required. Uh, done some largemouth fishing, uh, done a whole bunch of travel overseas, runs a little guiding company. I say a little with my tongue deep in my cheek. And uh, you're doing well, Anna. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. Yes, we've been very fortunate. Thanks very much. Anna, <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you get into fishing? Well, one of my first memories in life is from fishing. Probably about three years old fishing there little rock pools in the Cape for little fissies and little rock cod and things like that. I was just fishing with my father all over the place, mainly rock and surf and some river fishing in the Cape. And then um, I was exposed to fly fishing at the age of 14. And um, yeah, the, the bug bit me then and got involved with it, not very seriously. But um, at about 18 years old, I really started getting serious about fly fishing. And uh, yeah, it hasn't stopped since then. When you say you got serious, where were you in the Cape at the time? I was actually in the army, and uh, one of my friends had a, um, had a, had a farm in East Griqualand with some trout on and uh, he invited me out, and that's where I started catching my first trout, and then yeah, obviously yellowfish after that, that's where it all started. East Griqualand is a good place to catch your teeth. <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. And then how did you end up in Joburg? Well, after the army, I stayed up in Joburg, obviously job opportunities and everything, yeah. To stage and then um, started fishing for yellowfish in the Vol in about 1989. Carry on doing that, did a couple of trips to Mozambique and a few trips to the west coast of Africa. And yes, uh, in 1998, um, I got an opportunity to go and guide in the Seychelles uh, for a company called US Fly. And then I stayed on Alphonse Island in the Seychelles for three years, and that cut my teeth on flats fishing and saltwater fly fishing. And fish and saltwater? Yeah. Yellowfish, you're quite well known for catching some serious Lanka largemouth. Well, it was about four or five years ago that um, everybody told us that largemouth yellowfish are extinct in the middle of our river. And we thought, well, hey, let's go out and try and catch them. So we were very fortunate. Uh, it was, I still recall pretty clearly, 1st of September. The river was uh, at about 14 cumex. The water was reasonably clear. And we went out and we just fished water that you wouldn't normally, you know, we wouldn't normally fish. We usually used to fish the rapids and glides and little pockets and things for, for smallmouth yellowfish. And we went to the deeper water, obviously with a lot of structure and a good bit of flow. And I think we landed a hundred largemouth over six pounds in four outings. Yeah, we sort of said to the guys, we don't think that largemouth are extinct <laughs> in the middle of all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so give us a couple of tips on taking largemouth. Well, I think firstly, you've got to have a stealthy approach. Whether the water's clear or dirty, I think stealth is, is paramount. How you approach the water, being quiet, getting out of the boats, making sure that you, you make the first cast count. You know, with largemouth, I always say, if, you, if you're casting to a high synth edge and you don't hit the high synth, then you're short. And if you cast onto the high synth, then you cast too far. <laughs> you know, you really got to work the margins. Obviously, you want clarity. Um, first prize, you want structure, as in rock structure, you want current, um, not too fast, and you want depth. Those couple of things, if you find the right water, right depth, structure, then you just got to work it. And then fly patterns, I mean, it's such a new fishery. 
that, I mean, it's wide open for, for fly pattern development. I mean, we developed a couple of patterns like the MSP and little uh, you know, largemouth brush fly and stuff like that. But now, with all the awesome th- synthetic materials out there, I mean, you can, the sky's the limit, you know, what you can create. And you can make little minnows, you know, like the stubby head bob, you can create it and make it look almost exactly like that little boatfish in spawning colors or out of spawning colors. So that's the great thing about. Yellowfish as a whole, not only largemouth, but smallmouth as well. It's still there's still a lot to learn about the hatches, and still a lot to learn about techniques and how to find where to find fish at certain times of year. Now you guys have been working quite closely with some conservation stuff on largemouth. Yes, um, three years ago we we started a a conservation program where we we took a, a day in the year, usually after our social season, and then we had a charity event. Um, mainly to raise money for a conservation charity that we believe strongly in and the second one is just to say thanks to all the clients that have supported us through the year and uh, three years ago we managed to raise 80,000 rand for a large calula fish conservation project in Kruger Park mm-hmm. and the year after that the event became hugely popular and the year after that we raised 350,000 rand for a telemetry project on on the Vol River for largemouth and smallmouth yellowfish where Basically, we had a field operative working, um, tracking fish. We had tags for the fish. So we could basically go and, and collect data and say, look, guys, we've got to start regulating the flow of the river because when the, when the river level suddenly goes up, the think, fish think it's spawning time. They start spawning, the level drops, the eggs basically go dry. And just also to, to give us an idea of the movements of the fish, especially largemouth yellowfish, because so little was, was known about them. And some of these fish did about 2.7 kilometers a day. You know, that was the area that they, that sure. they cruised in. So that was pretty amazing to see how these fish move. And maybe a smallmouth for about nine months of the year moved about 50 meters in total. You know, it's sure. there from where you would spawn to feed to overnight would be about a radius of about 50 meters. So that's pretty interesting. So it gives you an idea of when you're starting to catch fish in, in an area, you know, a lot of times you'll catch the same fish over and over. Right? So how you treat the fish how you fight them, reducing stress on them. Now all of a sudden you start realizing how important these little things become, you know, because you, know, you can start naming your fish underneath a certain willow tree. That fish will be there pretty much every day for nine months of the year, and then yeah. until they move off. You know, we've got two main rivers in South Africa, basically. The Orange and the Vol are our biggest rivers. And, you know, if we don't conserve these rivers and conserve the fish in them, I think our waterways is, is, is sort of the... The guideline for any country, you look at your waterways and you can see sort of where the country's going, where the country's ecology are going, is going. And so it's, to me it's very, very important that we look after our resources and make sure we preserve them for the future. Yeah. Where did you do that uh, tagging? We did it at a place called Wachabiki. It's near um, Orkney, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had, we, it's, the guy spent six months on the, on the program. And um, I'm happy to report after we raised 350,000 rand just because of the... The hype we created, the guys managed to raise another 400,000 rand through, sure. through other sponsors. So, yeah, it's, it's a success story of note. But you've now traveled, and, and, and I know the guys want to ask about a few things. So let, let's talk about Seychelles. Bonefish, GTs, triggers, they're all standard fish. But you guys came up with a whole new approach for a fish that doesn't feed on a living organism. I decoded milkfish when I, when I, was, um, when I studied in Alphonse Island when I worked for US Fly was in the end of 1999. Um, I mean, every day you see hundreds of these fish on the flats, and they drive you crazy, and they're up to 40, 50 pounds, 1.4 meters, 4 length. Ridiculously strong fish. 
and it just drove me mad. I couldn't catch you know, nobody could catch them. You know, I'd done a lot of research, watched watched a few videos of guys foul hooking milkfish. Uh, I thought I was. You've got to be able to catch these things. So I hooked the first one on a little chartreuse and white clouser, size 8, a little chartreuse and white clouser. And I thought, well, that's easy. It took me exactly a year um, before I caught the next one. You know, you know we, we designed a whole lot of different fly patterns. We snor- I snorkeled with a fish. Eventually, I found out that they feed on, 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 on benthic algae, and this algae gets dislodged, especially in, during spring tides. You know, when the tides are strong, it gets washed off the flats. And what makes, it was St. Francois Atoll, what makes the atoll unique is that you've got four lagoons, all on different levels. So you'll have small gaps in between these reefs that the lagoons drain out of, basically creating these massive rivers. These milkfish would come and sit in these channels and feed on these on these slightly, a lot of them would feed on, 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 on uh, plankton. These fish would sit around on the surface with their mouths open, and they've got perfect little V-shaped grooves that channel the plankton down their throats and through their gills and into their stomachs. And, uh, but the fish sitting in the water column just below them, they were feeding on the heavier particles. And eventually, put two and two together, and I, I came up with a fly, developed a fly, which um, the editor of Wild on the Fly, Joe Daniels, um, named the Milky Dream, after actually having a dream about this fly. And um, it was nice. I had two clients with me, and I said to them, Nick, would you guys like to catch milkfish? I said, yes. The first question was, what's the milkfish? They, they, were, <laughs> they were very confident. They didn't know that these things were basically uncatchable, so I tied on a fly for them, and third cast uh, guy called Peter Hawks he hooked a milkfish and I, I I couldn't believe that the milkfish ate the fly and he struck it obviously the thing roasted him upstream and threw the coral bombings and lost the fly line or well, he re-rigged and then his wheels came off so he had me casting at the fish and I, I, I managed to hook the second one which we chased and an hour and a half later it broke us off on coral so we, we managed to hook about 20 fish that day which we didn't land one obviously a big learning curve hooks and leaders we were fishing 12 pound bound fish leaders for them and it was just ridiculous. And the next day, Peter and his, his lady friend, Charm, took the day off and said to me, well, they're not coming today because it's New Year's Day. So I said, well, I, I wouldn't mind going having a shot at these milkfish. So I didn't have a guiding gig the next day. I went out and I managed to pin and land six fish. And the first six milkfish, I think, legitimately hooked and fought one of them. And the next day, got all the clients into into these milkfish. And it just, you know... Growing up on the Val and, and, and really learning and on the small rivers in the Cape and the Val river techniques, that's what it, you know, that's what made me put two and two together with, together with these fish because it was basically just dead drifting flies into them. They don't chase algae. Algae doesn't try to escape from these fish, you know, and, and you've got to get it to the level of the fish um, so he intercepts it. Obviously, we did a lot of work in the seven years since we, since I figured out how to catch milkies and the fly patterns evolved a little bit, but that was basically it. That's how it started. So what makes the milky so special? Well, I think power, you know, to weight ratio. I don't think I've hooked any other fish that's that strong. It's a species on its own, Chonus Chonus. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's alone in its class. They jump, the, the power, the speed. It's incredible. There's nothing like it. Tackle? I started off nine weight rods for them, but I would suggest a ten weight rod. Purely because I wouldn't go too much heavier. Purely because you've got to make a lot of cast, you've got to be reasonably accurate, quite accurate in your presentation. You've got to be able to cast upright loops, um, present the, the fly line with a full leader extended every single time. Um, you know, you get maybe a, a yard, yard and a half of good drift. There's no mending, you could, doesn't help mending for them. Or, mm. you, know, you, get, you, you work on a yard, yard and a half drift, and that's it. Then you've got to pick up and cast again. Sure. You know, and it's about reading the fish's body language. And there might be 400 fish 
in an area, but they, you know, they might might have 40 different little pods, which are each doing their own thing. This little pod might be daisy chaining, that the one pod must, might be feeding upstream and switching off when they're going downstream. The other pod might be just moving upstream and feeding going downstream, eating the algae as they're going downstream. So it's, it's also a question of really observing, and with any kind of fishing, I mean, before you even make a cast, take a moment to... That's one tip I can give anybody. Take a moment to observe the fish and see what they're doing. Look at their body language. And it'll give you a much better idea where, where exactly to place the fly. Yeah, and true. just by sitting and watching them for a little while, we all tend to just rush in and you want to thrash <laughs> your water into a froth. And you, know, you never gave yourself the opportunity to just observe and see what these fish are doing. So I think that's where I got it right. And but now spending all that time on the, the atolls, what else have you taken up there? Um, well, basically... When I started up there, I'd never even seen a bonefish. So bonefish was sort of the first thing to get around, and nobody really worldwide, nobody had done anything on triggerfish. So I was very fortunate to guide with a guy called Wayne Haslow, um, who's probably one of the most experienced guides in the country, or fishermen, really. The guy's, guy's amazing. And you know, working together, and I think if, you, if, you, if you're in a, in a group of guys who are very passionate about fishing and, and, and you know, when there's three or four of you who want to who want the same thing so much, you, you tend to figure out things much quicker mm. than one guy sitting there pickling away on his own. So I think the group that we were, it was quite a dynamic group. Um, Rob McBride, he's a professor at Yale University now. Wayne Hazler and myself spent a lot of time you know, developing patterns and we each tied different patterns and try and see. So then the trigger fish was the next thing. Obviously an amazing fish for yellow margins and, and the starch trigger fish. We figured out those. There was a lot of stuff to be done on, on, on Indo-Pacific permit. When reading Jack Samson's book, I mean, he, had, he hadn't heard of anybody who'd caught an Indo-Pacific permit by the time he had published the book, so yeah. that was wide open. We were fortunate to catch quite a few of those. Then the milkfish, obviously, GTs came next. Then um, Ross Braun from Ferrari visited us, and he said, look, guys, I want to catch a sailfish. None of us caught a sailfish before, so that's you know, he gave us a book. Blue Water Fly Fishing by Trey Coombs and said to us, study this book, I'll be back next year and I want my sailfish. So that's how you learn and wahoo, all the blue water species we had to figure out from scratch. You know, we never, none of us had really targeted those things successfully on fly before. So yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing. Obviously, deeper water species like doggies, dog teeth, tuna, stuff like that. Um, all the other little flat species like thin-faced emperors, snappers, those kind of things. Yeah. And as soon as we started going to the to the more remote atolls like Cosmolito, Providence, I mean, there was no information about that. We just sat and went, look, let's go and explore these places. Went for a month and explored from my all the way down to Farquhar, Cosmolito, you know what I mean? And just basically visited every atoll, looked at, at its potential, and then took it from there. So with that came more species, like the humpbeck parrotfish. Yeah. I personally never caught one, but um, one of my guides, Paul Boyers, was instrumental in decoding Bumpet parrotfish. He was also the first one of the first guys in the world to catch a red lip parrotfish on fly. Hmm. Still in Alphonse. So, yeah, I mean, it's I'm fortunate to work and, and, and be involved in a, with a, in a group of guys who you, know, you can sit and brainstorm with and then you figure things out. So it's not, you know, obviously some certain species, you, one guy will come up with more information than the rest of the guys, but it's a lot of the times it's a team effort. And that's, how, that's how you really figure things out. You've got to be able to bounce ideas off other fishermen. So it's, it's, it's paramount for me that there's no secrets in the industry because if everybody shares information, it grows the sport as a whole. You know? True. People keeping little secrets and 
fair enough, you know, I don't want to know where your spot tree five underneath the willow tree with a big smallie sitting, but bounce ideas of each other and, and, and tell the guys which fly patterns, and that, you know, it grows the sport as a whole, and at the end of the day, we'll all be much better off for it, you know. Yeah. But now, you've recently come back from a little expedition looking for uh, marlin. Yes, for blue marlin. Um, they are the most difficult um, bullfish on fly, I've been told. Like I said, I've been uh, I've been spending a lot of time in West Africa, especially for Tarpon and and Dorado and Jack Revel like that, because it's 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 wide open. And I think you know, I'm sorry to jump off the subject, but the Tarpon in West Africa is what got me up to West Africa in the first place. And just for the South African market, why do you guys have to fly halfway across the Atlantic to go and catch Tarpon in the States or the Keys or Cuba if they can catch them mm. three and a half hours away out of SA? So that's basically where it started. The tarpon was a huge success, and then we decided, look, let's go up for, um, try and catch a blue marlin. So, put a trip together, we'd never, I'd obviously teased sailfish and hooked sailfish before, but I'd never even seen a marlin on a teaser. I mean, I'd see free jumping blacks in, in the Seychelles and things like that. We've hooked a few monsters, but never been able to land one, not me personally. Uh, so, we went up and just tried. Um, did some research, saw which was the best time of the year, which is June, July. Um, and then the juvenile blues are there, sort of between 80 kilos and 130, 140 kilos if mm-hmm. you're lucky. Nice ones. And uh, we went out there, and um, the first morning we raised four fish. Um, first fish we raised after two minutes. Teased the fish, and it was a bit of a Chinese fire drill on the deck, as you can imagine. First mullin up. They're very, very quick. Uh, I don't give you time like a Sally does. And yeah, we pinned the first one after about trolling for two minutes. Sure. You say different between mullin and selfish? Look, I just think everything happens so much faster with marlin. I think it could also be, you know, a sailfish will come and come up and bill the teasers, and you know, he'll play around with them. Sometimes he'll give you, he'll give you time to get organised and get the dozy chain out of the way and get the second teaser right. Whereas a marlin just comes up and he just eats it. He just eats the eats the cone, and then you just see an explosion behind the one cone, and then you look up and he's behind the other one already, and then he's onto the dozy chain. So he doesn't waste any time. So you really got to be. Everybody got has got to know exactly what their duty is on that boat. There's got to be a good synergy between the skipper, like any kind of bull fishing. I mean, the, the fish really is the captain's fish, you know, more than it is the angler's fish. Mm. I think, you know, getting hooking it. It's, mm. it's, it's up to the crew. You've got to have an amazing crew. And I think, yeah, you know, we just we just did our planning. Everybody knew exactly what their duties were. And the teaser man knew exactly which rod to go for. You know, so that made it easier. Just sort things out. You figure out things out very quickly. Um, so yeah, we managed to hook 12 uh, for the week and landed five fish and we had a couple of tackle failures. Yeah, but it was exciting. I mean, to land five fish and I think the best ever to date was six marlin and six blue marlin in a week, which was done by Flip Pallet and, and, and another guy, I forget his name now. That's pretty amazing to to land five fish and um, and hook 12 in a week. I think it's pretty cool. I can't wait to get back next year. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so where else have you fished? Um, I fished, okay, Africa, Namibia, Angola, Gabon, South to my, I haven't fished any of the Americas, that'll be on the cards next year, I'm definitely going there. I fished Asia, I fished Mongolia, Southern Siberia, I fished France, um, Austria, Germany, Italy. But I don't want to touch on all the destinations <laughs> in one day, but what was it like going to uh, Mongolia? Yeah, look, it was an, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I went... Um, to Mongolia in 2000, I mean, it, just after it opened up to, to tourism, basically. So there was very little Western influence. I went for a period of eight weeks and just traveled to Ulaanbaatar and then um, 
so basically took overland trucks across the Gobi Desert first and then went to so it wasn't just a purely a fishing trip I wanted to experience the culture and really see the country because it's always um, it's always fascinated me the culture and the people and everything then we went to uh, western Mongolia to the, the Oregon Valley fished the Oregon Valley then went up fished the Chalut Selenge and then went right up north to see the reindeer people in the Shama yeah. and then fished the Egg watershed and came back down um, to Ulaanbaatar. So, covered a lot of the country, an amazing, amazing place. I mean, the fishing's outrageous. I mean, you can't, you'll never have dry fly fishing like that in your life. I mean, Lenox trout and grayling were just unbelievable. I didn't spend too much time fishing for um, for Taimen. I did manage to work a few of them. They're awesome fish, but I think as a whole, I wouldn't only go, say, it's, it's just go for the fishing experience, just yeah. to experience how the people live. They live from hand to mouth every day, and they got nothing. I mean, if you go past one of their gears, those round tents, they'll give you whatever they can. Sure. That's what is the most amazing thing. Obviously, the beauty of the place—it's, I mean, it's stunning. It's unbelievably beautiful. You can't, you can't describe it. It's just. Tell us a little bit about the company that you have. I mean, you, how did you set that up, and how did it come about? Um, well, it's quite interesting. Um, after spending three years on Alphonse Island and basically cutting my teeth on, so I always wanted to go further and further. And every year I got invited to go and fish Waco with a, a group of Belgian clients. And I just couldn't go because of my other guiding commitments and everything. And then I, f- I finished up on Alphonse after three years of guiding there. Pretty much done and achieved everything I wanted to achieve. And then um, got back to Joburg and I'm, I said to Gerard Locher, uh, my partner, look, this is what I want to do. This is the company I want to start. You know, what your dreams are in those days different to what they know. And I said to him, look, I don't want to own any infrastructure. I don't want to own a lodge. I don't want to own boats, I don't want to own engines. I want to offer my clients, I want to identify a species I want to fish for. Then I want to identify the best venue in the world for that species and then identify the best time of year. And that's what I want to market and sell to my clients. So I don't, have to, I don't want to tell my guys, come in January when I know the fishing's crap in January. I want to sell, if the fishing's only good for one month at a certain venue, that's the best time, that's when I want to be there. And that's how we started. Then we started quite small block booked. Got a mothership, and our first mothership sank on its maiden, maiden, uh, on its maiden voyage to Seychelles, which was a bit of a shock, three weeks before the season starts. But we managed to salvage the season, um, did a, quite a bit of guiding um, to the northern Cape, a farm con- called Peniel for largemouth yellowfish. Mm-hmm. Obviously a couple of small trips to Mozambique and that, but because Seychelles was sort of the mainstay, it was the place I had experienced it, that was where our main focus was in. And um, from being, I think, 11 weeks, the first season, I think last season we did 35 weeks. Sure. Um, it's 350 clients we put through on three big motherships. So that was very, very exciting. Now it's obviously evolved that I do quite a few venues. We do Angola for two, two and a half months of the year. Mm-hmm. Tiger fish we do all over the place. Um, bit of yellow fishing on request, a couple of yellow fish clinics. Um, Marlin. So yeah, it's pretty diverse what we do. Um, sure. Spend a lot of time a lot of time abroad and we've got 14 guides on board at the moment to guide for us that's getting to be quite a big company I can't wait yeah but it's been wonderful I mean it's um, it's grown much faster than any of us of me ex- anticipated and yes I mean we've been very fortunate very lucky ok with your time that you spent on the, the largemouth and what other thoughts do you have on conservation well, what can we do to protect a largemouth and then obviously the other yellows in the country 
you know, first of all, how you handle the fish. For per, you know, if you're just a normal angler going out there, it's, it's how you handle the fish. Fish, fish with, with barblets, with barblets, with th- fish, thick enough tippet so you can land the fish as fast as possible and, and release it as fast, fast as possible. If you don't need to take a photograph of the fish, don't even touch it. Just slide your hand down the leader, tweak the fly out of its mouth and let it go. Mm. Try to handle the fish as little as possible. And then also, if you see fish dying, if you see fish that are injured, guys, you've got to report it. You know, I mean, if we... Everybody in our, in our heads, we always say, oh, we've got a lobby. You know, if there's a hundred of us making our voices heard, then government will listen or organization. But if nobody does it, you know, here's, here's an opportunity to do it, you know. Yeah. Create a forum, make people sign on the list, try and do anything. Besides treating the fish as, as well as you possibly can. But, you know, just getting involved. If you see fish that are diseased, report it, you know. Yeah. Tell what if it is. If you see pollution, get the word out there, you know. Find newspapers. Get involved. If no, none of us do anything about it, nothing's going to happen. You know, we can sit and whine as much as we want, but none of us act- actively get involved and, and point these things out. Nothing's going to happen. Right, uh, time's moving on us, so we're going to move on quickly. Um, yeah. I have a few, what we call the quickfire favourites. Okay. Uh, favourite dry fly? Okay, Caddis. Favourite nymph? I don't really have a favourite nymph. I don't nymph all that much. <laughs> I'd rather catch one fish on a dry fly than a hundred on a nymph. But if I have to pick... A favourite nymph, it'll probably be uh, pheasant tail. Favourite venue? I'd say for the moment, because I'm fascinated with tarpon, I would say West Africa, Angola for West, for, for, for big tarpon. Yeah, favourite species? Well, I haven't got a favourite species, because every species to me has got something that makes it unique and special. So yeah. I've, I've got many favourite ones. Okay, favourite rod? Well, obviously G. Loomis, GLX Blank is my favourite rod. I've been fishing those rods forever, so that's what I prefer. Okay. Uh, favorite author, book, movie? Definitely um, The Longest Silence by Thomas McGuire. Mm-hmm. Movie? My best new movie must be, without a doubt, um, Thugs, Bones, Bitches and the Milkman. It's a new documentary we just filmed. <laughs> we'll look out I'll for get it. you a copy. <laughs> now, we discussed this just before we started recording. You, you said you had a hundred interesting sighting so let's just keep it short <laughs> <laughs> well funny ones is always um, GT's probably do the funniest stuff um, I mean we've had GT's attack us and our clients so many you know, so many different occasions but um, one of our Australian clients we were walking we saw this black GT probably not a massive fish but about 40 pounds about 60 yards away from us we were discussing how we're going to approach the fish and still chatting about it and all of a sudden this GT just turned and came full tilt at him Grabbed his boot and shook him around and buggered off. And I mean, for no reason. That GT just cruised up, grabbed his boot, shook him around. It's, it's ridiculous. Some of the stuff like that happened. And he's, <laughs> you can't believe it. I had, had an incident on on a stove once, which is the mouth of a stove is it's pretty hectic as far as as far as sharks go because you know there's so much food and, and, and the window for those for everything to feed in there can be can be very short and. Um, one of my clients hooked a GT and I ran in after the thing. I actually got it on video. And uh, GT was on a ray. Um, he hooked the fish and the fish didn't want to run. So I ran in after the fish, tried to spook it out of the way. You know, just so you can set the hook so the fish goes away and you can, you can, you can set the hook on the fish. So I ran in with my teasing rod. I made a hell of a noise next to the GT and the GT just started biting me. started biting my knees and carrying on. didn't even run. Didn't know he was hooked. And then all of a sudden the GT bolted away managed to open the hook up anyway. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a, about a 12-foot lemon full tilt on its way to me. 
And so <laughs> I shouted at the client to run, and he gave about two steps. He was on dry land, and I, I was a little bit slow out of the blocks. And I had to turn and hit the shark on the head, which then proceeded to grab the, the teasing rod out of my hands. He grabbed the reel and the, and the butt of the rod and shook it out of my hands. And the fourth eye from the top went through my, right through my, this web on your, between your, your thumb and your forefinger. And you know, it was pretty scary, you know, and then you realize how much power a shark's got, you know, yeah. how quick things can go wrong. But I mean, touch wood, we haven't had any serious incidents or any shark attacks that anybody got hurt, but it can happen, you know what I mean? So. Are, the, are the sharks full there? Well, um, there, there are a lot of sharks, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's again a case of respect their environment. You're in their environment. You know, you're an intruder. Don't do silly things, you know. Don't touch a shark, even with your rod tip behind his dorsal, because he will turn around and bite your rod tip. Hmm. It's amazing how, how fast and how strong they are. And I think what a lot of guys don't realize, if you're out there so far away from everything, it takes a tiny shark to bite you. And it could end your life, you know. So you've yeah. got to be very aware all the time, and handle all the wild animals with respect, you know. This season, for the first time, I had a, I saw a sea snake that was wrapped around my leg three times, you know. So I was jumping up and down trying to shake this snake off me. <laughs> um, it's pretty hectic, you know. If bites you, you've probably got four or five minutes left, and you're gone. So stuff like that happens to you, you know. I suppose it's like a, a game ranger walking in the bush. One day you're going to walk into a lion. You know, same thing with us, you know. I've been circled by some big tigers before, but they left me alone eventually. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, all expenses paid anyway. There are a couple of things that are that are quite high on my list that I want to catch. Um, I would definitely say all expenses paid the Amazon mm-hmm. in November, December. That would be that would be radical. Not only for the peacocks, but I think for the payara and all the other things. Yeah. As you can find there. So that's and just to see the Amazon to experience it would be amazing. Thank you, Honor. That's uh, really been good. And you're welcome. They say you know life is given. But I tell you now, it's all within that river. You find yourself in the heart of heaven. Close off so long you could swim forever. One place to rest your grace, the silver sands lead the way. The water's golden stories told, free clouds have white summer days. One way to spend your day, take yourself a deep ride away. Drive six hours and walk five days. Hey, hey, hey.